We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome to our latest physical media episode. Here I'll be rounding up some of the great new releases that came to disc this spring, the spring of 2022. I'm recording this on Memorial Day, which is when I'm finding out that some of you really consider to be the first day of summer, but I am here to tell you it is absolutely not summer yet. Summer solstice takes place on June 21st, which is my late grandma's birthday. So I always like to pay tribute to her on that day. And it's also the longest day of the year. It reminds me of that line from Daisy Buchanan in The Great Gatsby, where she's talking to a friend about, don't you always wait for the longest day of the year and then miss it? And she repeats that she always waits for the longest day of the year and misses it. It's an exchange that I believe happens toward the end of the book. I think maybe that fateful day where they decide to ride into town and everything goes wrong and people find out things and then a death happens. One of two, I should say. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read The Great Gatsby, my goodness, read The Great Gatsby and then you can watch the you know film adaptations that in no way are substitute for the prose of F. Scott Fitzgerald. But I digress. Here I am speaking solo on these movies. I know some of the longtime listeners enjoy these solo episodes where I ramble about film. And I mean, thank you so much. That's awesome that you do. They make me nervous. And I would much rather be here talking to some of my brilliant very funny, charismatic friends than just going off the cuff on film, but I'm here for your amusement, so let's do this. Discomfort be damned. The movies that I'm going to be going into today include the following in alphabetical order. The Clock, that is the Judy Garland version of The Clock for me and my gal. The Godfather, and I mean the brand new release of The Godfather on ultra high def or 4K that box set that just came out recently. 
The Last Waltz on 4K from Criterion, that edition. The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, which came out on 4K and Blu-ray from Paramount, along with two other Paramount releases, besides, of course, The Godfather, which was also Paramount. We have Ordinary People, the wonderful Robert Redford movie that will make you cry buckets, and The Untouchables as well. I should say The Untouchables is on 4K and Ordinary People is on Blu-ray. So sit back and let me add your shopping list, I guess. Kicking things off, we have two films featuring Judy Garland, the great Minnesota-born, hell yeah, actress and singer and all-around entertainer who was a child star who had a tragic life of course i mean how many movies have we seen about judy garland including judy a few years ago with uh, renee zellweger who won the oscar you know it seems like every five minutes they're making a new tragic retelling of judy garland's life story and um you know it's important to know the real life history of these people but i would rather just celebrate their work and honor them there. I'm sure the legacy that she would want would maybe not be the stuff that was happening behind the scenes, but more of the great work she did and inspiring generations of film lovers to dream and cry and swoon and uh, delight. I think Probably her best performance was, I have to say, I mean, this is not going to come as a surprise to anyone who knows me, but I kind of like dark romantic Judy Garland over like Wizard of Oz Judy Garland. I mean, that's a great film, sure. But I tend to gravitate more towards the roles with a little bit of meat or a little bit of stuff going on. Like a woman who has been through some stuff. I mean, obviously... (laughs) Things happen in in Wizard of Oz, and I'm not going to rag on the film that everybody loves uh, phenomenally, and it's good. It's just not my favorite by far. So when we're talking about Judy Garland, I always think of her like singing "The Man Who Got Away" in A Star Is Born, and just like the shivers that go down my spine and down the arms, like goosebumps. I'm one of those people who music does that to me anyway, or a voice hitting a vibrato or just things like that. I kind of respond to things um, in that manner. And so Judy hitting certain notes or really singing from her soul just gets me. And so um, A Star is a Born is definitely my favorite. And I like it when she went for roles like that. She wasn't really given the opportunity to do so very much. But she didn't shy away from it. I mean, even a movie like Meet Me in St. Louis, which I love. It's a great movie. It's one of the best Christmas movies, of course. But it's one that also kind of works all year round because it takes place throughout the seasons. You are following this family throughout a year. But the most heartbreaking, beautiful, you know, memorable sequence is her singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas uh, when her family might be moving from St. Louis away from this boy that she loves. And it's very devastating. So I love her in that, Meet Me in St. Louis, even movies like that. Summerstock and The Pirate, of course, are fun. Yes, 
but I am going to go for Judy, the dramatic actress singing and singing from a real place of heart and integrity and, you know, devastation or crying on the inside and uh, laughing on the outside, because I just think that's really maybe the truest form of who she was as a person. And that's why it hits me that hard. This is a really long meandering lead in apologies, you guys to the films that I'm going to be talking about right now. But they kind of both play into that side of duty. I'm talking about the clock. And for me and my gal, the clock in particular is an odd one. And it's one that I love. Weirdly enough, I just had minor surgery last week. And so when I was recuperating, I was trying to like stay busy and work on a couple of projects. And one of the projects I was doing was making this list of movies for a friend that he could watch on Criterion channel. And he's seen like so many movies. I knew that I had to make a phone book size list essentially because 90% of them, I'm sure he knows. Uh, but when I saw Criterion publish the list of what was coming in June, they brought up Judy's Centennial. And these films were both on the list, but the one that I recommended was the non-musical, The Clock. And crazily enough, I like send that. Uh, and then the next day I managed to go to the box where I get all of my shipments essentially from press. And Warner Brothers was kind enough to send me The Clock in Blu-ray along with For Me and My Gal in Blu-ray. So it's a weird little twist of fate that everybody was thinking about the clock at the same time. So I rewatched it. It is a non-musical. It's Vincent Minnelli, of course, who was her husband. I can't remember if this is when they had first married or were courting, essentially. I think he said he fell in love with her and she him when he was convincing her to do Meet Me in St. Louis. She was kind of over it. She was tired of doing what she called like kiddie musicals or playing a young woman. She wanted to play a real woman. And so for Meet Me in St. Louis, he kind of convinced her, I think maybe telling her about the December sequence, the Christmas sequence of this woman who thinks she was stood up, I believe, by her neighbor. She doesn't know if he loves her, of course, which is always stressful. And, um, you know, so I think Vincent Minnelli said when he convinced her, like she was the only one that could do this. And hey, this isn't just um, an ingenue or a teenager who is like, you know, essentially the Margaret Sullivan character. No, this isn't what he wanted. He wanted a woman. And so I think that's when they kind of had a meeting of the minds and clicked and fell in love with each other was uh, that. And it continued on with the clock, which was after that. So I can't remember if they were married at this point, but you have, I mean, it's romantic. It kind of, when you watch it, and then you think of the film like Before Sunrise or those great movies where like, um, or scenes on television. There's one in Halt and Catch Fire that I love too, where this 
uh, couple hasn't talked in a while and they talk on the phone and they like talk all night long. And before sunrise is one of those, because, you know, the most important thing with somebody is who you can have a conversation with, obviously. And in the clock, that's what's going on. Judy Garland plays a young woman in New York who comes across a serviceman played by Robert Walker, who is on leave. He is from like the Midwest and uh, doesn't know anything about New York City, which I kind of relate to because I have literally never been to New York City and uh, I need to go. I know that's really embarrassing. Like I've been through New York on the way to like Niagara Falls and shit, but I have never been to New York City. And uh, so friends really want me to go and I would love to go. But I want to go with somebody, I think, or, uh, you know, I want to make sure that I don't get lost. So I, I really, my heart goes out to Robert Walker's character in this movie, like being there and not knowing where to go or what to do when he's on leave. And so he's in like Grand Central Station and asking people and uh like the first person he asks is from new jersey and has no idea what to tell him and then he meets cute you know there's like a clumsy thing where he accidentally takes out her heel and she's on the escalator calling after him wanting him to bring her heel and he's so excited someone is talking to him and didn't know what she was saying that he thought she needed help and uh in a different manner, like, well, you know, he's a soldier. So he rushes up to see her and then they start talking. And it was one of those things where I think it was a Sunday and she needed to go. And then he, you know, well, can I go with you for a little bit? And before long, they're walking around the museum or the park or everywhere, just having like a marathon conversation. And there's a really cute moment where they're at the museum and they hear these kids talking about the exhibit that they're like sitting at and the facts of the exhibit. And Robert Walker says something like, uh, you can learn a lot at a museum. And so it becomes very, very evident that they've been wandering around this thing, like not even paying attention to the real exhibits, but more just uh, falling in love with each other as they share this really intimate and wide ranging conversation, which is great. And so it's a whirlwind courtship that's happened a lot, especially in heightened stressful circumstances, which is what World War II was. And um, so he is going to be going back to the military and like, can't remember if it was two days time, something like that. There are a couple of cutesy adventures that they get into where they help out a milkman you know, it's very 1940s, you guys. But before long, they're kind of figuring out, do we just go our separate ways? And then he goes off to war and I might not see him again. Or he's from the Midwest. Like, when am I going to be in this guy's life again? Or do they get married? <laughs> because this was, you know, a time before cell phones and social media and uh, email or, you know, <laughs> access to travel options that were real viable, I guess, for everyday people. They didn't have budget flights. Uh, so there really weren't, I mean, he would have been in war, but when he came back to the Midwest, like she couldn't fly out to see him occasionally or vice versa. And so they just decided to get married. And then it is about the realities of, well, this sounds good in theory, but like, what are we doing? And 
you know, so there's a little bit of darkness and reality that creeps in to the proceedings. And uh, I, I like that. Of course, it's very rose-colored glasses and you know everything is going to work out for our young lovers but it's nice and it's I, I can't imagine that this was probably too far off from the experience that was going on I know for example one of my friends her grandma was from England and that in World War II met a soldier from America and they got married really quickly And then she went to America to meet him. I think this was after the war. And there were many British young women that she was there with whose gentlemen hadn't passed away in the war, but didn't show up. And you started to realize um, maybe just, of course, got married in order to get laid, essentially, because back then that was like the thing. Um, well, you can't have sex before marriage and, you know, I'm going to off to battle. So I've got to like lose my virginity or have a great last hurrah before I go do that. And so my friend Shelly was telling me like my grandma got lucky, but a lot of women uh, did not, or a few found out like, oops, he has a wife waiting um stateside and was just born in England and uh, did that or else promised them the sun, the moon, the stars, essentially, in order to get laid and then didn't show up. So I think in this era of expedited courtship and the heightened tension, sexual tensions and what was going on um, in America and around the world, I think the clock really would have checked a lot of boxes for people or seemed very on par. Maybe it would have been like the way before sunrise was to Gen X, very relatable, essentially. And it was a really big hit as far as with critics. It was a national board of review pick as one of the top 10 movies of 1945. So it was extremely well received. Judy Garland, I believe, was only in like three movies that were not musicals at all. And this is one of them. And it's definitely one of her best. It's so sweet and really can't recommend it enough. So if you like Before Sunrise or you like stories about people coming together or interesting meet cutes or portraits of the war that were on home soil that also deal with, the female point of view, because usually we're like the sweetheart or the thing in the World War II movie where, you know, they're going to talk about the woman they left behind or, you know, the job that's waiting for them. And as soon as you see that in a war movie, you're like, buddy, you are so dead. And usually they are. So this is a good way to celebrate um, what was going on with the women and maybe what it was like for them back home. Next up, we have another film That was made during this era of World War II, but actually is set in World War I, which is always a good way to do it because then you can kind of do a commentary on the times and war without being too like on the nose. I'm talking about For Me and My Gal, which was directed by Busby Berkeley in 1942. This one is a musical, but it's a dark musical. So don't let that like deter you if you're not a musical person. Although I have to say it kind of, it always breaks my heart, especially with like 
straight guys when they tell you like they don't do musicals or it's kind of like when a guy says I don't read movies Jen like they don't do subtitles if they say they don't do musicals it's it's a turnoff I mean you don't have to be like the biggest musical person ever but you know kind of embrace stuff outside your comfort zone or all types of cinema like go for it be a well-rounded person and uh you know for me and my gal is a darker musical especially for busby berkeley it's surprising because you know berkeley was one of those guys who is very famous for like the shots from above really high up of like women's legs all in unison or these gorgeous people like all diving into a pool or that's busby berkeley and that is not what this film is at all it is Gene Kelly's first movie, you guys. He was very, very nervous. He had only done um, stage work, stage musicals. And he's one of those perfectionists who would practice and practice until he was like bleeding, essentially. I mean, there are stories. I wrote an article on Gene Kelly a few years ago. And when I was reading about him, like I thought, you know, I'm a perfectionist, but fuck, this guy is nuts, essentially. And, uh, you know, so he was very worried to make this. What I love about Gene is he is notorious for not getting along with people. <laughs> like, he could be a bit of an asshole, you guys. Like, uh, oh, my God, the stories of uh, Esther Williams and him on uh, the set of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Like, they hated each other. So he could really be a difficult human being. Also, the stories of um, him with Debbie Reynolds on Singing in the Rain, which is one of my favorite movies. Like he even said later, like, it's a wonder Debbie even talks to me because even he knew he was being an asshole. So Gene could be really difficult to be around, but he credits learning how to act for the camera all to Judy Garland. He said he taught or she taught him basically what to do, where to look how to perform, how to play it differently from stage to screen, like maybe less broad or less big, and just really credits everything as far as his career goes. He calls her his mentor. They had insane chemistry. I mean, there is the most notorious gif of all time going around for the pirate. You guys should look it up. It's super hot where they slow down a kiss between the two and you like look at where his hands are and you look at her reaction and you're like did they hook up that night because if they didn't like whoa but um yeah so they had really good chemistry and it's evident right from the start between these two and they just really enjoyed each other's company respected each other and knew how to make each other look the best and I've always respected that. Like Gene was a huge star by the time he made Summerstock, but he did it. He made like this very basic musical in order to help buoy Judy Garland's career when she was having so many personal problems and problems with drugs. And so that always really kind of was a real vote in Gene Kelly's favor as far as um, his loyalty to friends go. I always did really love that about Gene, that he was willing to go, you know, I've made the most groundbreaking. He invented the jump cut essentially in On the Town, and he did some real experimental things in Singing in the Rain and 
helped inspire some in American in Paris, but he's like, you know, I'm going to make summer stock for Judy, even though it is like a let's put on the show musical. And he was far bigger than that at the time. So that was always really cool. Although I do have to say, I think summer stock is going to be in the criterion collection. Watch it because it has my favorite dance he ever did. Like besides singing in the rain, of course, which is a solo number where it starts out with him and old newspapers on the ground and a creaky floorboard on the stage. And he is making his own music with props and with the set. And then eventually it evolves into music as he gets going. And it's seriously one of the coolest things you will ever see. So watch Summerstock essentially for that one sequence. But all of this, of course, originated with For Me and My Gal, which takes place in World War I. We are following around vaudeville performers across the country. Judy is a far more established performer. Gene Kelly's character is new, but super cocky, super handsome, and knows it. So he's one of those guys where uh, there's jokes about, you know, don't trust the actors because they're too charming or whatever. And that is Gene Kelly in a nutshell, like getting off the train and flirting with every girl in sight. And, um, you know, as soon as you see him do that, like he gets off a train, even it's like the literal embodiment of, well, a star has arrived on the screen and it's Gene Kelly and boy, was he ever a star. So he eventually works his way into the professional and uh, romantic heart of Garland's character, kind of usurps her partnership that she has with a very nice guy who is in love with her, but, you know, is kind of one of those no sparks guys. And she becomes hung up on Jean because how would you not be hung up on Jean? And the two have a tempestuous relationship, but she is somebody who really looks out for her younger brother who is studying medicine and wants to be a doctor. And she seems to be one of those people who's doing everything in her life nobly to help her younger brother, who is the light of her life. And he goes off to World War I, which breaks her heart. And then as the career takes off and their partnership and increases and they have more success. Uh, Gene Kelly's character gets drafted and that's when things take a very dark turn in for me and my gal and go in very unpredictable places that for me and my gal is much darker than you would imagine going in when you see the names Busby Berkeley, Judy Garland, and Gene Kelly, but it's very, very worth it. Of the two films, The Clock is the better film. It's the more timeless one. But for me and my gal, man, I mean, it's another film that's commenting on World War II, but it's set in World War I. So if you watch these kind of in back-to-back as far as what was going on contemporaneously in World War II cinema, they tell an interesting tale um, about the harsher realities of war and what it was like for young people to suddenly have their whole lives uprooted. So can't recommend them enough. This is Judy in my preferred mode of Judy Garland. No offense to everyone who only (laughs) thinks of Wizard of Oz when it comes to Judy. I mean, she's magical in that movie, my goodness. But you know what? 
I like Judy Garland, dramatic actress, and this is where she lives for sure. Jumping into our next film, our franchise, The Godfather, which is my favorite film of all time. I kind of put all of them in the same bracket and just say my favorite of all time is The Godfather series. I'd cheat a little bit, but you know, there's precedent for it. I remember in the 90s, Roger Ebert doing that, much to the chagrin of first Gene Siskel when he cited the Three Colors series, I believe, in his top 10, and then did it once again, uh, not the year it came out, but he did it again uh, at the end of the 90s when he was making his list of the best films of the 90s with Martin Scorsese. So I'm saying The Godfather counts as, you know, a series and or just my favorite thing in the world is The Godfather movies, basically. But looking at the stack of movies that I'm going over today, I'm realizing we have some serious Italians being represented here. I know, I know it's Italian-American pride, but we have Vincent Minnelli, of course. We have Scorsese with The Last Waltz. Da Palma with The Untouchables, and we've got Coppola. I mean, the gang is all here, you guys. So very exciting for Italian-Americans everywhere. I'm here to represent, of course. If you haven't listened to the episode that I did on The Godfather with Sean Cosby, S.A. Cosby, the author of Razorblade Tears and Blacktop Wasteland, which we recorded last summer. I think it came out in August as well, or else it came out in September. But look for it. It is in season two, in the middle of the season, or late into the season. And it's just wonderful. We decided to go into Al Pacino in the 70s, because I'm one of those people, just like I prefer Jack Nicholson in the 70s. I prefer Al Pacino in the 70s as well. As a De Niro girl, I'm all, hey, De Niro was great from the 70s to basically like Ronin, essentially, in the late 90s. And then he started to make some choices that were not my favorite. But I am biased where it comes to De Niro, of course. Everyone knows that. But <laughs> talking about Al, uh, I love his feral, passionate, sort of more restrained Pacino. I feel like he was doing some introverted things. Of course, it depends on the character. You got to be extroverted if that's what it calls for. But he wasn't, you know, doing the shouty Pacino thing that he seemed to do a little bit in the 80s, but then it kind of went into its whole different arena of shoutiness uh, following the win of the Oscar for Son of a Woman. Then he just started to shout in everything and became sort of like his shtick. But I'm not here to rag on Pacino because even shouty Pacino is great. One of our all-time greatest actors, of course. But what I'm saying is the episode, Sean and I are both in sync on that. We love Al Pacino in this era when he made like Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon. Even stuff like And Justice for All or Bobby Deerfield, which isn't even that great he is wonderful in because he's showing different sides of himself. He's taking some chances. And so we decided to dedicate an episode to 70s Pacino. I can't remember if we chose both Godfather films or just the first one, 
because it has been a while, but we wound up just kind of talking about the entire franchise. So I'm not going to go into the story. You should all know the story of the Corleone family by this point. It's a tale of brother dynamics, which is something I'm obsessed with. I grew up super close to my brother, not so much anymore, but you know, it shows you how relationships change. Also, it deals with parental expectations and familial obligations and expectations. And that thing where you're like, do I not want to turn into my parents? Do I want to turn into my parents? Um, that is exactly the dilemma that our main character, played by Al Pacino, has. He tells the woman he is dating, played by the lovely Diane Keaton, no, I'm not going to turn into my father, who's the head of this criminal organization and played by Marlon Brando. And then by the end of the movie, of course, he has turned into his father. So it is kind of a Greek tragedy, a little bit Shakespearean. Of course, he indulged the Shakespearean side in the third film, Coppola, his much maligned, very controversial third film. I actually don't think is the abomination that a lot of people do. Every time I mention the series or Sofia Coppola or talk about the third movie, I'm inundated on social media by like jerks kind of chiming in. Oh, Sofia Coppola ruined the entire series. I mean, she was filling in last minute for her father and she's actually playing a young woman when she was a young woman, kind of insecure, finding her way. I mean, she basically was supposed to be like that. And I'm not saying it's the best performance ever, of course, because she was uncomfortable. And, you know, it was a little, you do wonder what Winona Ryder would have done with that part, or the actress who unfortunately was murdered, who was supposed to have it. She was killed by a stalker. And so you do wonder what other people would have brought to the role, but Sophia is fine. I don't like the ragging on Sophia. And I also think that there are some great elements to the third movie. Obviously, there's that whole weird incest thing going on, which goes along with the opera and the Shakespearean and Greek tragic elements that Coppola kind of gravitates to, of course. There's also the thing with Immobilari and the Pope. And you know what? If you put a gun to my head, I couldn't explain the whole Immobilari thing to save my life. But you know what? We're just there for the human dynamics and the relationships and just to see what's going to happen to Michael in his old age. So it is not as good as the first two films, of course. The first two movies are perfect. But you know what? It is not the horrible film that a lot of people seem to believe it is. Part of the reason I think it was ragged on, not only because of how much everyone loves the first two films, but also it came out in 1990, which was sort of the year of the gangster film. You had Bugsy. And of course, you had the granddaddy of all modern crime movies and gangster epics with Goodfellas which is, you know, an all-time great film and definitely the film that kind of Godfather Who, when you watch that movie, essentially, or Godfather 3, Who, I should say, you still, I mean, Godfather and Goodfellas are very different movies. I don't like it when people just put them in the same bracket and say that, oh, because they're both crime movies, like these are apples and oranges and they're not meant to be compared and contrasted. I kind of have an issue with ranking things all the time anyway, except 
the one ranking that I know for sure is that the Godfather series, man, is, you know, it's the I Ching, as Tom Hanks says in You've Got Mail. It's the answer for every question. And it's just filled with the most remarkable performances and actors. Robert Duvall never really gets the praise that some of the others do in this series, including Marlon Brando and Al Pacino. You've got James Caan, I would say, and John Cazal, who's my favorite. Oh my goodness, I love him. Although in the first movie, I am all about Santino, played by James Caan. He is my favorite character by far. I like the whole, um, you know, he's tempestuous, he's crazy. I'm not married to the guy. I don't love that he cheats, but you know what? He's just a fun character besides that. And I don't need all of my people on screen to behave like saints. So I love Sonny. I love that he has this hubris. He flies off the handle. He does things for the reasons of his heart. And he is not going to be the best person to step up in place of his father. And so Michael, who is far more cerebral and introspective and somebody who was a war hero, who knows tactical strategy, this is post-World War II, uh, is the one who takes up that baton, essentially. And, you know, then we have the second film, which traces the roots back. You, You follow the story as it continues. But also at the same time, of course, we go back to Sicily with Robert De Niro stepping in to the role of Vito after he comes to America as a little boy. De Niro plays Vito, who is the Marlon Brando uh, character. De Niro, of course, won the Oscar for his role. He barely says a word of English the entire time, which is amazing because you know if this was made today, he would just be speaking perfect English. Uh, There would be no accent or anything like that because, you know, uh, audiences have short attention spans and Hollywood doesn't want to make people actually use their brains at all. So I love that this movie, it unfolds slowly and it requires you to meet it halfway. You need to read subtitles and just pay attention to things, the little ways in which things pay off. Speaking of subtitles and when to use them and when not, one of my favorite choices that director Francis Ford Coppola makes in the first Godfather, which is turning 50 and which is why the series came out on 4K, is that in the pivotal scene, probably the most famous in the entire film for good reason and just an amazing sequence, is when Michael has to step up and kill Sterling Hayden's character. And when he is in the restaurant with these men that he is about to kill, it's a sit down and he is being spoken to in Italian. And as they speak, we don't see a word of the conversation in subtitles. If you speak Italian, I'm sure you totally understand what's going on. If you speak Spanish, you might be able to pick up a few words. I was able to pick up a little. I don't speak the greatest Spanish, but I was able to identify a couple words. But what they're saying doesn't even matter because the decision to kill these men is a foregone conclusion. And so you just see everything play out on Pacino's face as he's resigned 
and steeled himself to this thing that he has to do. And it's, yeah, it is a thing of beauty. I could talk to about this film, you know, for hours and hours. So I'm going to stop. Let's move on to the third film. And the fact that they released two versions of it. Coppola loves to recut a movie. My goodness. You know, Cotton Club actually was improved by Coppola's cut. How many has there been like 45 versions of Apocalypse Now at this point? It's like Coppola stopped, but he has a right to do it. They're his films. As long as you don't get rid of the original or, you know, take it out of circulation so nobody can find it again. I'm looking at you, George Lucas. So, you know, Coppola does respect the fact that people might want to see other versions and compare and contrast. And so with The Godfather Part 3, he did recut it and it became The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. I actually think Godfather Coda is a far better title when you add in The Death of Michael Corleone. It gets a little clunky, but, you know, Coppola likes his grandeur. So as we know, he does, Mr. Uh, Greek tragedy, Shakespeare guy, opera, it's all there in the third movie. So sure, the death of Michael Corleone. He's kind of jumped things out of order a little bit. The movie seems to start faster, and I like the way that it plays. It makes some of the elements that didn't work very well kind of fit a little better. I still, you know, I think I understand the Immobiliari plot, but I don't really care. When you're watching the movie, you could you could care less about it. But I do really recommend the new cut. I, you could watch either and be fine. Again, I don't hate the original, but I thought Coda was an improvement. My favorite things about the third movie are Talia Shire and Andy Garcia with Talia. You kind of have her playing like a Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard character. Um, she is amazing. She gives this kind of Gloria Swanson performance. So, so good. And it's just, she knows what she's doing for the second you see Talia Shire, who's been great throughout the series, but never really gets the credit. She's kind of like the Robert Duvall who doesn't really get singled out quite as much and she really should. She's excellent. My other favorite thing in the third movie is Andy Garcia who kind of played it like all the brothers rolled into one, which I thought was a good way to do it. He is playing the late Santino's son who was the son he had with his mistress. And so it does bring Sonny to life a little bit for us, but there's also some of the sweetness of Casals Fredo, and also, of course, the brains of Michael, and the heart of uh, and loyalty to the family of the Talia Shire character. So the brothers and a little of his aunt are kind of rolled into Andy Garcia, and he's just so much fun to watch, especially in that scene with uh, Joe Montaigne, who's kind of playing his character a little bit like a mammoth villain. He's sort of like mammoth speak a little bit still which I love because I love Joe Montaigne and I love his mammoth work and he has this showdown that is legendary <laughs> it's violent it's crazy but it's also just so hilariously great uh, I'm somebody who really enjoys the um, whole uh, dick measuring thing on film because I think men are 
really ridiculous when they start doing that. And Godfather 3 kind of has an all-timer sequence in front of Michael that plays out between Joe Montana and Annie Garcia and, you know, Talia Shire's in the same scene. It's just so, so good. So I wanted to say I do defend the third film. I also liked Coda. The Godfather series at this point has been reissued so many times. This is the series I bought the most in my life. I owned them on video because my family actually watches the series like every year at Christmas. Uh, I don't know if it's an Italian-American thing because we do view this movie as an epic about family more than a crime film. So we watched the franchise. We had it on video growing up. Then I bought the DVDs, then I bought the Blu-rays. And uh, fortunately, this time, though, I did receive the Paramount set of the 4K edition, the Ultra High Def. And it is stunning, you guys. Stunning. Gordon Willis's cinematography, he was you know, nicknamed famously the Prince of Darkness, is really dark. And it's supposed to be dark. I'm not saying it suddenly turns vivid on you. But you see some contrast in the, the different shades of black or gray or brown that I had never seen before and some clarity in things that I really hadn't seen. I'm sure, you know, seeing this in the theater on the big screen is a revelation. I wish I could have, but right now this is just the next best thing and I can't recommend it enough. It was remastered, restored, and, you know, the transfer in 4K is a knockout. I also think that everybody pays attention to the 4K picture, but not the sound as much. And the sound mix of this is a knockout. I mean, my goodness, you have that great score. The theme song, you know, anywhere. And as soon as you hear it, I mean, it pours out of every speaker. I have um, theater sound in my home and it's just it gives you goosebumps so can't recommend this set uh, enough for you if you have 4k also if you have um, theater sound or 5.1 or dts preferably so do check that out i know it's pricey and you probably bought this series if you're a fan you bought it a few times i'm sorry to say you, you might want to buy it again but you might want to buy it again so I do recommend the Godfather series, of course. Next up, we have one of my favorite music documentaries, probably after Stop Making Sense. I guess technically you could say that both Stop Making Sense and this film, The Last Waltz, are more concert movie than documentary. But this one actually, unlike Stop Making Sense, which is a total performance film, uh, featuring the talking heads, of course. This film does include great candid interviews with the band and some of the other people associated with them. So it's more of a documentary. I'm going to stand by it and call it a documentary. Sometimes when I've shared that, I've gotten people like, no, Jen, it's a concert movie. And it's like, whatever the hell it is, I love it. The Last Waltz is Martin Scorsese, who did kind of start with some experimental shorts and also documentaries. He was one of the cutters on Woodstock, for Christ's sakes. But anyway, um, Martin Scorsese's film, The Last Waltz, about the band, is 
a remarkable, fun, intensely interesting film. There's so much going on in this one. There's so much drama behind the drama. Like it is the last concert that the band ever played. It was in Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco on Thanksgiving, 1976. The film itself didn't come out until 1978. But by that point, you know, there was some drama and some turmoil in the band between especially Robbie Robertson, who had already buddied up with Martin Scorsese at this point. You can tell that the two are in like a total man crush, man love situation when they made this movie. Like, you know, the the joke about it was like, uh, it was in Levon Helm's book. Like, you know, I think it was either Levon Helm or the late Ronnie Hawkins who said something like, you know, just what this film needs, more fucking close-ups of Robbie Robertson. Because, yeah, you can totally tell that Scorsese just loved filming Robbie. And the two were buddies at this point. But it is just a stunning documentary. There's also drama going on with some of the performers, the guests that appear, like Bob Dylan having a beef of, like, who got to go on first. And Dylan needed to be solo and do x number of songs but only those songs or there was all this drama you also have neil young showing up with like visible cocaine on his nose in one scene you got van morrison doing high kicks when he was probably high or drunk out of his mind and it's so hilarious as he does these kicks you kind of can see some of the members of the band especially Robbie sort of like both amused and also slightly worried that old band is gonna you know topple over instead of successfully land one of his high kicks there's just so many great people involved in this additionally you have Joni Mitchell you have Emmy Lou Harris, Muddy Waters, The Staples, Rango Star, Ron Wood, Dr. John, Paul Butterfield. You got just a whole great lineup of people involved in this one. Of course, the band consists of Rick Danko, Levon Helm, Garth Hudson, Richard Manuel, and Robbie Robertson. It is a love letter to the band, obviously, because it is their last concert together. If you want to know more about the band than you're going to get here, at least Robbie's version of events, there is the very Robbie-centric documentary that came out a few years ago called Once More Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band. And I like that they put his name in the title of the film because it is essentially his diary or his version of what happened. But, you know, there were multiple people in this band they're all going to have different opinions Levon Helm had a book of course others um, things didn't go well when they split up so there's a lot of drama there as well but for this blissful 117 minutes that this movie takes place everything is free and fun and just filled with the most beautiful music so catchy so many great moments and performances like you have um one where eric clapton his guitar strap starts to break when he first starts playing and robertson just has to like jump in and start playing um the exact same piece uh and that 
Clapton was going to play. And it's just kind of this cool musicianship of and this respect that goes between the two men that as soon as, you know, he gets that guitar strap fixed and is able to start playing again, then Robbie just bows out and it shows his sort of skill as a virtuoso guitarist. There are multiple extra features on this version from Criterion. This is 4K and the sound is amazing. The picture is so, so clear, you guys. DTS HD Master Audio Soundtrack was supervised and approved by Robbie Robertson. You have two alternate soundtracks, the original 2.0 from 78, uh, presented in DTS HD, and also uncompressed stereo mix from 2001. You have audio commentaries featuring Scorsese and also then members of the band, members of the production crew, performers, Dr. John, Ronnie Hawkins, Mavis Staples. You have a new interview conducted by David Fear, the critic, with Scorsese. You have a documentary from O2 about the making of the movie. Outtakes, interviews with Scorsese and Robertson from 78 and other features you can only get on Criterion, which is an essay by a critic, Amanda Prochusik. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Amanda, I apologize if I am not. But I love this documentary, this rock doc, music, concert, whatever you want to classify the film as. It's one of my favorite Scorsese productions, Scorsese films. So do check that out. Can't recommend it enough. But I am basically like a 75-year-old dad. I love the band actually more than my dad does. Like he enjoyed the band and the weight and uh, some of the songs, you know, the night they drove old Dixie down. Like he enjoyed it. Sure. Some of these songs, but, and we watched this together, but man, I became a huge, huge fan of the band to the point that I actually own a wait a minute Chester shirt. It's in my closet. It is missing a comma though, you guys between Minute and Chester, and it drives me nuts. So part of me is like wondering if I should take a Sharpie to this shirt and like, you know, as a grammarian, as sort of somebody who writes, it just, it drives me absolutely up a wall. So I might have to do that. And then if I fuck up the shirt, of course, probably buy a new one, but hey, get a new color. Who doesn't need, you know, a few different shirts of the band, basically. Next up, we have what very well could be my favorite Western. It's kind of a tie between this and Red River is a close second. But I think the man who shot Liberty Valance will always have the edge. It's definitely my favorite Western. It's also Megan Abbott's favorite Western. Your friend, the wonderful crime writer, my favorite writer working today, actually, especially in crime. She's just such a good chronicler of women's internal thoughts and feelings, emotions. Her work is sensual. It is just so evocative. And yeah, I love Megan Abbott's work and she's a brilliant film mind. So when I heard that this was also her favorite Western, I was very excited. She brought up a really good point. Um, earlier in the year 
when she saw the man who shot Liberty Balance on the big screen, I think in anticipation of this release in 4K, they brought it out to theaters again. And she noted how many similarities that the film has to The Power of the Dog, the Jane Campion picture, that it seems as though Campion definitely had this movie uh, as a touchstone for the Benedict Cumberbatch role, especially Lee Marvin. There's some sexual insecurity that kind of goes through the Lee Marvin character. I mean, for goodness sakes, in this film, he uses a whip actually so there is some sexual weirdness there is also an early scene where he humiliates jimmy stewart's character in a cafe and jimmy stewart is wearing an apron and he's very rude he like trips him and stuff and of course if you've seen the power of the dog you know that cumberbatch does that early on in the picture as well and there is the song that is they're singing in town a hot time in the old town tonight, which you hear a lot clearer in The Power of the Dog, but you do hear it in Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. So there are plenty of little nods and similarities and links between the two movies. So it would make one hell of a really good double feature. But Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is my favorite John Ford. Well, it's definitely my favorite uh, Western as noted. Red River being a very close second. It brings you for the first time together, John Wayne and James Stewart. Stewart had made some excellent, very dark Westerns in the 50s with Anthony Mann, whose Westerns I feel like never really get the credit that they deserve, like Naked Spur, which you heard me talk about on this show with Walter Chaw, actually, last winter. And if you don't know that episode, you should look it up immediately because Anthony Mann Westerns are great. He also did a few others with uh, Jimmy Stewart from that era, which are great. And Man of the West with Gary Cooper is probably my favorite of the Anthony Mann Westerns. But he did several with Stewart. I want to say he did eight pictures with him overall. And I can't remember how many of those are Westerns. But you do want to look up Anthony Mann so Stewart had been in Westerns. He loved the genre. He loved working with the same horse he called Pie, which uh, Walter Shaw talked about in the episode on the Naked Spur. And so in this one, he is playing uh, a lawyer. He, again, it's anti-mythic and it is going against expectations. And it's a very subversive Western. I mean, I already told you about the whip, but the good guy in the film Jim Stewart, Jimmy Stewart's character is named Ransom Stoddard, and the bad guy is named Liberty Balance. So there's a lot going on in this movie. It's also breathtakingly beautiful. It was shot in black and white, kind of to hide the age of its cast, who were about a good 10 or 15 years too old for the characters they were playing, also including Vera Miles and some of the others. I mean, Vera can probably pull it off a little bit better than uh, Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne uh, could have at that time in their life. Maybe Lee Marvin too, but you know, they're such good actors, stunning screen presences, and they bring so much that yes, 
they're mesmerizing. And so is the black and white cinematography. Though I did read that the only way that this could get made was if John Wayne was then locked into a what turned out to be an ultra successful, but a 10 picture deal with Paramount. So that was how they got the cost of the film and the film getting greenlit was John Wayne being locked into this contract, this picture deal with Paramount, which actually garnered him and the studio a lot of money and some great Westerns as well. But it's interesting at that point in his career, uh, Ford movies, especially Ford movies, this ambitious and this going against the grain were harder to get made. Westerns had kind of started to go in the late 50s. They were on their way out. They did have a resurgence in the 50s. I feel like Westerns kind of do post-war or around wartime and, you know, right after Korea, you know, you're looking for heroes. Also the wide open spaces uh, in the race against TV film went widescreen and were, you know, doing very breathtaking things with cinematography and cinemascope. Um, to get people excited about seeing the rolling hills and the, um, you know, the desert and the massive landscapes on the big screen, like in uh, Ford's The Searchers, for example, which is another just towering Western that you should check out as well. You should check out all the Fords, of course. And Man Who Shot Liberty Valance was made, you know, around the time that they'd already started to make Western TV shows, which were very popular so I think the, the television was starting to win back the Western fan base that uh, film had lost. And so Western movies weren't quite the draw that they were, or Hollywood didn't think so anyway. But this, it's a knockout of the picture, absolutely. It's one that gives away the spoilers, like right away, as soon as you dive in, you see it's in present day, and then we go back in time. You see that uh, Jimmy Stewart's character had been a successful senator, somebody known in the town for killing the Liberty Valance character. And also he gets the girl, the Vera Miles character, we find out. So there's really no suspense when you go back in time. And that was actually a criticism Variety and some of the contemporaneous reviewers had when they saw this movie in 1962 and it's um, like 60 years ago actually but Ford knows that what really matters is how these things happened and the relationships and also the legend of the lies you tell yourself or you tell others and the reality that it doesn't matter that these things are given away right away that no actually he didn't really kill the rebalance John Wayne's character did. And John Wayne's character was deeply in love with the Vera Miles character and kind of took her for granted, didn't really declare himself or do anything about it and thought that she would just wait for him forever. She was his girl and he didn't really have to put any work or thought into it. And, you know, he took her for granted and she winds up with Jimmy Stewart. The 4K presentation just adds to the richness, of course, of the cinematography, the deepness of the shades of gray, black, white that you're going to see in a black and white film. Sound is very, very impressive as well. It's part of the Paramount Presents uh, releases that the studio has been 
coming out with for the past couple of years. And this would be number 31 in the numbered set. The set includes the film in both Blu-ray with special features and also the 4K ultra high definition edition of the film as well, which is what I watched it on. So the special features are not on that disc. Uh, They are on the Blu-ray. The DVD is not included because, you know, if you have the ability to play the film in Blu-ray or 4K, why are you watching a DVD, essentially? So this is a really good investment because you get both versions of the film as far as uh, the quality goes. If you're a fan, this features uh, the commentary by filmmaker Peter Bogdanovich, along with archival recordings that he had himself with uh, John Ford and James Stewart. These were available on earlier editions of the film on disc from Paramount, including the one that was released years ago that I actually reviewed as far back as 2009, part of the Paramount Centennial Collection. So now it's in the Paramount Presents Collection. So they're just kind of re-releasing them as new versions as part of these new collections that they are releasing. But thankfully, in this case, it is actually worth checking out because you're getting it in such dynamic resolution. And like I say, it's a damn good Western. It is certainly my favorite. So highly recommend Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Next up, we have... The first film that I ever saw in the first college level film class that I took at 16, it's Ordinary People from director Robert Redford. The film came out in 1980 and it won Best Picture and three other Academy Awards, including one for Timothy Hutton in Best Supporting Actor, which made him the youngest to ever win in the category. The film is based upon the novel by Judith Guest from 1976 that I've never read. The script adaptation was done by Elvin Sargent. It's a very moving film. I think it gets a bad rap for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think domestic or family dramas are kind of frowned upon or looked down upon by the mainstream as, you know, feminine or not sexy or, you know, missing that punch or that danger or that testosterone that I think people gravitate to with film. Like nobody wants to admit that they like the family drama, essentially. I think another reason is because it beat Raging Bull for Best Picture, which, you know, is bananas. Raging Bull is easily Scorsese's best film. My favorite film that he made, of course, is Goodfellas, but his best is undoubtedly Raging Bull. And uh, De Niro won that year for Best Actor. It's a phenomenal film. It's not one you can watch a lot. Of course, you can't really watch Ordinary People a lot as well because, you know, it does break you in half emotionally, but it's really stellar. One other reason that I think it is looked down upon or overlooked, I should say, is because the movie Goodwill Hunting from Gus Van Sant, based on 
Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's Academy Award winning script. And they're in the film as well. Took a lot from Ordinary People. Also Little Man Tate and a few other movies that they have openly acknowledged helped inspire their film Goodwill Hunting, which was made almost like a calling card for Matt Damon as both writer and actor. Like, well, I'm not getting the parts I want. Damn it. I'm going to write my own stellar part. And boy, did he ever. The film is very much it's about a troubled young man coming into his own growing up finding love and doing so with the help of an offbeat shrink, which <laughs> happens in this film. Of course, in this film, it is not a genius who is able to solve mathematical equations. Um, he's a MIT janitor and falls under the tutelage of the people at MIT who want to use him as a part of their think tank and, you know, develop his brain that he hasn't really developed on his own because he's just a savant, but he is so messed up from things that have happened to him that he absolutely needs the help of a good uh, psychiatrist or psychologist. And that is what Robin Williams is in Good Will Hunting. In this film, it's another quirky shrink and it is, uh, in this film embodied by the wonderful Judd Hirsch from Taxi. I'm a big Taxi fan, I'll admit it. I don't know if it's dorky or whatever, but I love Taxi, such a good sitcom. The reason that we watched this movie, it was the first one that we saw in my introduction to film class. Again, I was 16 and it just totally blew my mind because although I love to read film books and some of them did illustrate things like framing and stuff like that, it wasn't until we saw it in practice being broken down by our professor who paused this movie so many times because he loved to hear himself talk. And also it was very imp important that we learned the fundamentals that it took us like a week to get through ordinary people. It was crazy. I hadn't seen this. So it was a little obnoxious that it took a week to get through it. But like I say, Jen, before I watched Ordinary People and Jen after, I never saw film the same way again. The other really funny thing about my film professor is he was one of those guys who went to a prestigious school and felt the need to remind you of that like every five minutes. And it kind of became like the college equivalent of a drinking game. I don't drink, but I suppose you could have done that or you could have done anything like tally every time the guy brought up his alma mater because it was sort of a really funny recurring joke with my friends and I. He went to the American Film Institute and so he kept bringing it up and it was just hilarious to the point of just even tangentially like, well, and he also liked to let us know the famous people that he maybe rubbed elbows with when he lived in Hollywood or went to the AFI or knew them by like using their short names. So every time he would bring up Redford, it was like, well, Bob and I, and uh, just, you know, it got to the point of sort of making us smirk a little bit. The number of times he would bring up, uh, people and shorten their names to sometimes short names. Like you don't really even know if they really went by this. Like 
River Phoenix. I remember he said Riv once and we kind of all looked at each other like, what the fuck? But anyway, back to my professor. So yeah, every five minutes it was, well, when I was at AFI, Bob and I talked about this or, you know, he, he would let you know that he had these conversations and you seriously doubted uh, the veracity of some of these claims, but he was very amusing. It was sort of funny. I sat in the back row of the class along with uh, two of my best friends. I sort of hung around my brother and his friends in my teen years. And uh, so when I went to college, I wanted to go to one close to home or I kind of had to because I just had back surgery. My parents didn't really want me driving. And so I went to the one that my friends Paul and Chris were going to be at. And so I sat in the back with the guys and we were movie buddies. So we really knew movies, but the professor had this real like prejudice against people who sat in the back row. I don't know. He thought we were, you know, all stoners or something that sat in the back row of class And so it was really hilarious because none of us were Uh, the first test we ever took. And he didn't believe in textbooks because this was a guy who loved hearing himself talk. And uh, so we had to take just copious notes, but they were all really great notes. I kind of am angry that I didn't keep this notebook because I think I filled the entire thing with really valuable great stuff. He learned from Bob at AFI. No, I'm just kidding. But um, they were really great. And I loved uh, learning all of the, all of his wisdom, shall we say, at AFI, whether or not it was really gleaned from Redford or Riv or whoever he knew or claimed to know. But he had this prejudice uh, against the back row. And it was very funny because his tests were notoriously difficult. And I managed to ace it the first time I took the first test. And he like, actually, it was a huge auditorium, walked to the back, got my name and like stared me down and goes, well, great. Now I'm going to have to rewrite the fucking thing because nobody should get perfect. And uh, so I took a lot of pride in that. I thought he was being funny. He was not being funny because he straight up made the test much harder the next time. Obviously, it was a different level of um, question, different subject matter. And uh, it was a great class. It was one of the best film classes I took. But uh, yeah, I mean, such a character. And I still remember some of his weird summations about ordinary people, uh, themes and points being uh, put across or ones he assumed were being put across. But he would hit pause and then he would get up and go to the screen and point out things in the framing and the blocking because it's very classical in using barriers to separate the family who are having trouble after uh, Timothy Hutton's uh, suicide attempt. He has now since left the mental hospital and he's home, but he's kind of struggling to uh, get back after a tragedy that, you know, destroyed the whole family. He lost his brother in the most horrific way. And so Timothy Hutton is struggling. And Donald Sutherland, his father, is wanting to do whatever he can to help. 
the mother is one of those stoic wasps who's very icy and doesn't want to admit that there's anything wrong, played by Mary Tyler Moore, who actually did hold Timothy Hutton at an arm's length when they made the picture. Don't believe she really talked to him much, kind of ignored him for the entire shoot, almost by, well, definitely by design in order to make him feel a little intimidated and off balance. And then I guess when the picture wrapped, she, uh, of course, spoke to him. Not that Mary Tyler Moore is actually the warmest individual. You would think so watching the Mary Tyler Moore show, but she is fully acknowledged in her own memoirs that that is not her modus operandi. She's a little cooler and takes a while to warm up to people a little shyer. And I think she's calling on those elements in her role here. Of course, in if you know anything about Mary Tyler Moore, who lost a son to um, possible self-inflicted gunshot. Well, it was a self-inflicted gunshot. We don't know if it was intentional or not. She denied that it ever was. You know, this film really is hard to watch knowing that that happened um, just after she made this film. So there are a lot of things at play when you watch this film that might affect you, um, especially if you know anyone who has battled mental illness or anyone who has, you know, attempted to take their own life. Um, I have some, you know, relatives, younger cousins who had some troubles like this that kind of hit me while I was watching it this time or people that you've gone to school with or known through work or whatever. So it's one that probably should come with, you know, the joke, all the trigger warnings or something. Um, but it is just a powerful film, incredibly well acted. Elizabeth McGovern is also really good in a very supporting role. Usually these roles are kind of thankless as sort of the girl that, um, you know, falls in love with our hero or is attracted to him and then helps kind of give him the confidence he needs or something. They're a little thankless, a little like a, um, not a manic pixie dream girl, but something along those lines, sort of like the too good to be true girl. But, you know, McGovern is playing her as an average girl who just likes him and cares and wants to get involved there's also some subtle things that are at play in the screenplay by Elvin Sargent that I love that were pointed out in addition to all the framing by our professor, which made me kind of look at film a little bit closer and in a different light than I'd ever have before. So I have a real uh, affection for ordinary people. But at the movie's beginning, Timothy Hutton's character is so messed up and so um, battling his own inner demons that he is unable to eat breakfast with his family. And then at the end of the film, he's ready to eat. And it's just something that subtle. And you might not even notice it the first time you watch the film. But then when you start paying attention to where we came in and where we left and the character arc and the development and the subtleties, there's just a lot of little poetry that is going throughout the film and Timothy Hutton just blows you away. I was a big fan of his from The Falcon and the Snowman. I remember watching that on a Super Bowl Sunday and just being completely mesmerized by that film. I made the Pandemic Movie Club watch it. It is an all-time favorite. Like if you haven't seen it, drop everything and watch The Falcon and the Snowman. 
It's interesting. Everybody talks about Hutton when it comes to ordinary people. And obviously for good reason, he is amazing in the film. But watching it this time, I became far more aware that the person who was really just breaking my heart and drawing my eye the most was Donald Sutherland and what he was doing subtly. He's playing a people pleaser. I mean, it just gets you because I am a people pleaser and I'm always trying to work on this, but you know, he is to the extent of being a people pleasing wasp where I'm the same way. Like I don't want to argue with somebody I'm with in public or when you're at a family function or you're out with um, like somebody you're dating and you guys are having kind of an off night or he said something horrible to you and you don't want to get into an argument in public. Like you put on a united front Uh, Somebody with uh, chronic pain, as I am, you're always trying to kind of present the best side of yourself so people don't feel bad for you necessarily, or um, using humor as a defense, which I always kind of have. And so when I was watching Ordinary People this time, maybe because now I am closer to the parents' age, obviously, I was just completely bowled over by uh, Donald Sutherland. And what he brings to the film. Don't get me wrong. I always knew he was a really good actor, but I also watched Don't Look Now again uh, for the first time in ages during the pandemic. And so I think watching that and then watching Ordinary People again, it really made me aware of just how fucking good he is. And he's kind of like Hackman, one of those people who doesn't maybe get the credit that they deserve because they're the workhorses. They're not as quote unquote marquee level handsome as like Newman and Redford. They're not as showy as De Niro or Khan or Pacino were in the seventies or Jack, but they were just always doing really great work. They were the chameleons. And the older I'm getting, the more I'm just increasingly fascinated by those guys, the people who, no matter what the movie was, no matter if it was good or bad, are just always doing good work. They're doing their best. And that's Hackman and Sutherland. And Hackman in particular has really become, I would say, one of my favorite actors, like a top five, possibly because I'm just always blown away. I'm charmed by him. I'm scared of him. I'm fascinated by what he's doing, these weird little choices he makes. He makes it look so easy. He's kind of the acting equivalent of like Fred Astaire tap dancing or Gene Kelly, you know, doing his uh, jazz movements. So Sutherland is right there with him. Ordinary People is such a remarkable performance. Obviously, this year that it came out, uh, Robert De Niro, who everyone knows, was like my first love, essentially. (laughs) Definitely my favorite actor was Robert De Niro. Really deserved the award for Raging Bull. Of course he did. But I would say Sutherland Man was like right behind him. It isn't as showy. It isn't Jake LaMotta flipping over tables and acting like a caveman or being so tortured and, you know, just playing uh, to the fences because he's supposed to. It's subtle and it's controlled. 
but it's no less effective. And so I encourage you this time when you watch ordinary people, pay attention to everyone, of course, you know, the iciness of Mary Tyler Moore, the sweetness, but also the fact that she is playing her with flaws of Elizabeth McGovern, Hutton, of course, breaking your heart. You've got Judd Hirsch, who's great. And then especially pay attention to what Donald Sutherland is bringing this movie. It's a great film Paramount put out in Blu-ray recently. So the edition that I'm holding is another one of these Paramount Presents. This is a numbered series. This is number 30. So it comes directly before Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, which I just talked about. And, you know, it's a great transfer. It looks wonderful. Very vibrant. Academy Award winner. Highly recommended. If you were a video store kid in the early 90s or you collected videos and you owned any from Paramount Pictures, chances are you saw some of their super cool music video, almost Adrian Line, who was one of their directors, style montages of their films. It was very MTV-ish, very music video, and it would pull different hero shots from the films of Paramount's past and put them together to a snappy song, usually one that was in a Paramount movie. Well, one of my favorites that I saw a million times growing up, mostly because my brother loved action movies and I sort of followed my brother around like a puppy dog, was one from Paramount called Everybody Needs a Hero, which is like, bring home your hero today. And it would have a big, wide array of clips from, you know, the Tom Cruise movies and Apocalypse Now and just every action movie that Paramount made. And it opened with Kevin Costner standing, saying the greatest line, one of the greatest from The Untouchables, which is, so I hope you've signed on for some action, gentlemen, because you're going to get it. And that is exactly what you get when you watch the movie. That's the clip from Kevin Costner in, which is The Untouchables, Brian De Palma's Untouchables. I'm not talking about the old television show that was super popular back in the day. I am talking about De Palma's crazy, wild Untouchables based on a script by David Mamet, you guys. It was produced by Art Linson. It was based on the book of the same name, The Untouchables, from 1957. Although, do not mistake what happens in The Untouchables for, like, what really happened with Elliot Ness. Because, you know, this isn't how it went down, you guys. But boy, does it make for an entertaining as hell uh, film. And... It's just a blast. I love it. It's probably my favorite De Palma. It's another one of those like favorite Scorsese is Goodfellas. Best though is Raging Bull. Well, favorite De Palma is definitely The Untouchables. Best, I don't know. That could be Blowout. Might be. But favorite, I am always going to go with Untouchables. It's the one I watch the most. I watch this film at least once a year. It has the greatest cast. You have, you know, 
Ennio Morricone score, you have Armani suits. That's something I kind of always put together when I am tweeting about it on social media. And since Paramount was kind enough to send me this brand new gorgeous 4K over the weekend, I'm sure I would have gotten it last week, but I had surgery recently. So I had to wait till I could go to the box and get it. But when I shared it, I called up an old tweet that I had written. And of course, it opens with that quote that I saw a million times, not only in The Untouchables, but those great Paramount ads from VHS from the early 90s, which is, I hope you signed on for some action, gentlemen, because you're going to get it. And I always say it's time for Bobby De Niro with a baseball bat, Mamet Speak, Andy Garcia's hair, Sean Connery with a bad accent, Morricone's score, Armani suits, De Palma doing Eisenstein, and Kevin Costner as a badass T-man because he is playing Elliot Ness, the man who brings down Al Capone, also in the film. And I don't know how many times I've seen it. And every single time I forget that she is in it is Patricia Clarkson. I believe it was her first film role. She is playing Elliot Ness's wife. And she's gorgeous and very good. It's a supporting turn, of course. Usually wives in cop movies are thankless. And, you know, she doesn't have a lot to do, but she is kind of his moral center. And the goodness that you see that is inherent in Elliot Ness comes through in the scenes with his wife. And as he is, like, opening a note from his wife that she had sent him on a first raid that he does. It's a really cute scene. I love it. So um, also in the movie is Charles Martin Smith. If you're a fan of American Graffiti, as I am, you'll know him as Toad. And uh, he is in here as the brains of the operation who (laughs) is, you know, paying attention to all the taxes and the ledger and thinking we're going to get him for tax evasion, tax fraud, and uh, goes after him for that. And that is actually what ends up hanging Capone, if you know the story. Uh, Garcia is so good as uh, he's playing an Italian, which he does in The Godfather as well. But he is playing this cocky Italian who changed his name from Giuseppe Petri to George Stone because the, you know, Italians where there was a lot of prejudice against him. There's Italian and Irish prejudice back and forth in the film because they hired Scottish actor Sean Connery to play an Irishman. And he like doesn't even change his accent or he tries a little bit, but it's, it's laughable. It's not the greatest. I know it drives especially the Irish nuts to see uh, Sean Connery sort of doing that. Most famous Scottish actor playing an Irishman. Um, but you know, he has his Sean Connery presence and he's like, damn it, I'm not doing an accent, but his early scenes with Andy Garcia are great because they're sort of, um, sizing each other up and figuring out if they want to take, uh, Andy Garcia fresh off the farm, um, into their operation and, uh, make him a cop because he is at the Academy right now. They know they can't trust the Chicago police. Um, it's during the prohibition era. If you don't know the story, um, in 1930, it's set and the Bureau of prohibition agent, um, Elliot Ness is the one that has been tasked to stop 
Capone. Nobody else can. The Chicago cops are all being paid off or paid to look the other way. Uh, even when bombings are going off around the city, Capone had a celebrity status. Um, De Niro really enjoys playing that up. It is a monstrous performance, like I said, with the baseball bat. Uh, that's a scene that's just harrowing. When you see that, you kind of see where um, Tarantino got the idea for the Lucy Lou scene in Kill Bill, which is, you know, um, all around the table and then the shit goes down and it's horrifying. So there's a lot to this. There's a great sequence involving the Mounties um, where they have to try to stop alcohol from coming in from the border um, and hopefully intercept a ledger that is going to give them the clues to Capone's dealings. There's a couple scenes that are super hard to watch, of course. Um, the death scene, spoiler alert, of Sean Connery is just devastating. Also the one of Charles Martin Smith uh, the one with Connery, though, goes on and it is extended and it is gory. So if you're sensitive to that, I mean, I've seen this movie a million times. I'm not really sensitive to gore, but just the emotion of it, because you're so invested in who this man is. You really just hate to see this happen. Um, it is hard to watch. And so is the aftermath, pretty much, of the one with Charles Martin Smith. You know, what is it about De Palma? And elevators. It happens in an elevator. He loves elevators. He also loves trains and train stations. And I mentioned Eisenstein in this film is most famous for recreating the Odessa step sequence, which is from the Eisenstein film, Battleship Potemkin. And uh, it plays out here in a train station with Garcia and uh, Costner as they have to gun down somebody in order to protect a witness and a baby carriage goes down the stairs and uh, you're just dying because you want to make sure that this baby is going to be okay. And uh, yeah, it is extremely well done. Uh, De Palma is a cinephile. And so it's cool to see him sort of indulge um, some of his works of homage that aren't Hitchcock related because nobody loved to do a Hitchcockian homage as much as De Palma. I mean, that is his go-to guy. So it's cool to see him um, evoke Eisenstein here. The script is full of just insanely quotable dialogue because it is Mamet and it's Mamet when he was at his peak. You know, this was around House of Games or when he wrote uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross was around this era. So this was really when Mamet was at the height of his powers. So uh, if you're a fan of his writing and uh, why wouldn't you be? I mean, I know the guy has turned into a mega idiot now, but we're talking about uh, De Palma in the late 80s, all the way up through, I would say, probably the movie Heist for me was maybe his last great hurrah. Um, you know, and this is in 1987 is when uh, Untouchables was. So this is early great mammoth. And, you know, this is also after he wrote The Verdict, uh, the script for the Paul Newman one. So he had written some really good scripts uh, for Hollywood beyond, of course, his plays, which he is most famous for as a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. 
So there's some really good lines of dialogue. I mean, what can you say about Morricone's score? As soon as it starts the Untouchable Suite at the beginning of this, you're just on board. And um, it's it's almost a little too theme songy, or it seems like it, or it would be in anyone else's hands. But, you know, De Palma knows how to play that up. That's his thing. And he's like, you know, damn it. I don't care if people might consider it a little campy or whatever. It's amazing. And uh, it sounds better than ever in the 4K Ultra HD edition of Untouchables. I thought, you know, as great as the picture looked, and it really did for me, I think, in this case, I was really conscious of the difference in sound as soon as this thing started. Um, the sound design of the film overall, and of course, in that classic, wonderful score. And that should do it, really. So Untouchables is our final film. Again, if it wasn't clear enough, highly recommend you pick this one up. You haven't seen The Untouchables or you're in the mood for some action, gentlemen and ladies, uh, you're going to get it with this. So check out The Untouchables. I want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.